Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Brian Riedel. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute who works on fiscal and economic policy. Brian has previously worked as the chief economist to Senator Rob Portman and as the staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. Brian, thanks again for uh, coming on. Uh, always, always good to have you. Thanks a lot, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, there, there's a lot going on, as, as I'm sure you've been following. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the Democrats uh, faced the prospect of coming into the midterm election cycle with, with not much to show for their majority uh, in Congress. The Build Back Better package was basically dead. Uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin was, you know, uh, opposing a slim down deal on climate change and health care. Uh, but then, you know, surprisingly, last week, Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that they had reached an agreement on a bill that's since been dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, this bill hasn't passed yet. Uh, the Democrats are still working out the details. By what, you know, it's, it's a far cry from the multi-trillion dollar Build Back Better agenda that had been initially proposed, it is meaningful legislation. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars are involved in new federal spending. There's changes in health care, tax hikes, all sorts of things. So, you know, I guess the first question is, what, what do you make of this bill? What should we make of it? What does it contain? And what are, in your view, its chances of passing? Thanks, Brian. Um, you know, it's funny how far we've come on fiscal policy where a bill that spends about $470 billion and taxes $790 billion almost seems like a victory for advocates of small government. Uh, that's because for the past year, we've been worried about $5 trillion over 10 years, which would have been the biggest legislation uh, outside of war spending, you know, per perhaps in half a century or more. Even still, about four hundred and uh, 50, 470 billion dollars still makes it one of the biggest peacetime bills of the last couple decades. Uh, even that. Um, but again, I still feel like we kind of dodged a bullet if we don't end up getting the three trillion, four trillion, five trillion dollar stuff. So, th the reconciliation bill consists of about 400 billion dollars in energy and climate tax credits for businesses and individuals about $100 billion to allow Medicare to negotiate or essentially price, price control, I'm sorry, uh, um, uh, drugs, uh, which will save supposedly save Medicare money, but may lead to less innovation. Uh, I misspoke. That's about $300 billion. And then the pay-fors in this bill are, there's a lot of taxes. There's a 15% corporate minimum tax. There's a lot of IRS tax enforcement, carried interest. My interpretation of this bill is that if you, if you take the reconciliation bill and the semiconductor bill that's passing along the same time, these two bills basically contradict each other. Um, the reason I say that is this is called the Inflation Reduction Act because it would reduce deficits by about $300 billion over 10 years, supposedly. But the semiconductor bill they passed the day before would add about $300 billion in deficits over 10 years. So ultimately, in terms of inflation and the economy, they cancel each other out. 
Now, the other awkward uh, contradiction is the two bills provide huge corporate tax preference and tax credits for climate, green energy, um, science, semiconductors. And then they, in the same reconciliation bill, put in a 15% corporate minimum tax that essentially punishes companies for taking tax credits. So on the one hand, you're giving companies tax credits, and then if they take them, you're imposing a minimum tax on them. So really, there's a lot of a lot of contradictory aspects of these bills. Yeah, it, it sounds pretty incoherent. So, so what's your view on the chances of it passing? Well, the semiconductor bill, you know, has has passed, and it looks like there's not going to be any barriers for that getting signed. The reconciliation bill really comes down to the Democrats. Uh, Republicans aren't going to provide any votes for this. And in the Senate, that probably means um, Senator Sinema is going to have a lot to say on this. If, as long as Manchin stays interested or stays supportive of the bill, and he hasn't really wavered even as the bill has been picked at, then the first question is, will Sen- Senator Sinema support it? Because she's been pretty skeptical. But then beyond that, they actually have to go through... Um, some some legislative battles on the way. Anything that is not fiscal is going to be removed from the bill because it's a reconciliation bill. So there might be some changes. And then they have to go through a vote-a-rama on, on the Senate floor where anybody can offer amendments that each can pass with only 50 votes. I think Democrats have the votes to probably pass this. I think Senator Sinema is going to ultimately support it. They just have to see if they if the Democrats can survive all the amendments without anything passing that breaks up their coalition. I would say it has about a seventy five percent chance of getting over the finish line. Hmm. Um, you know, you've you've mentioned the semiconductor bill uh, that did uh, get some Republican support. Um, you know, what's in that chips bill, as it's called, and and why did so many Republicans? decide to support it, would they have supported it had they known about this, uh, this other, uh, you know, bill that Schumer and Manchin have, have come out with? Yeah, the science bill is about $80 billion in semiconductor production subsidies and tax credits, some of which we're just going to take back with the minimum tax that was in the reconciliation bill. And then there's about $200 billion in discretionary spending for science, such as the National Science Foundation and other grants that still have to be appropriated. That first $80 billion is mandatory spending. That's guaranteed to happen. The other $200 billion in additional discretionary subsidies and National Science Foundation funding still has to be appropriated. Um, Republicans went along with this in part for pork reasons. Some of the biggest negotiations in this bill was over where the spending occurs. And there was a huge push in this bill to make sure that the spending was spread in as many states and congressional districts as possible. So that ended up winning over a lot of moderate Republicans who were still kind of doing the old school bring back pork to my district push. There wasn't as much focus on making sure the money is spent where it can be most effective. It was making sure that it would be spent where it can deliver benefits back home. That being said, Senator McConnell said that he and some other Senate Republicans voted for this bill under the promise that there was not going to be a reconciliation bill on top of it. They basically said, we can't afford both a semiconductor bill and a reconciliation bill. We can only do one. If there's no reconciliation bill, we'll do the semiconductor bill. Well, amazingly, hours after passing the semiconductor bill, just a couple hours, 
Schumer and Manchin unveiled the reconciliation bill that they had already negotiated much earlier, but had actually kept it secret until they could pass the semiconductor bill. So to a certain degree, Senate Republicans were duped. They got tricked. They trusted the Democrats that there wasn't going to be a reconciliation bill. Now they have some buyer's remorse, but it's too late. Well, um, you know, our colleague Chris Pope uh, has, has just argued in a piece for City Journal that the Inflation Reduction Act is inaptly named. So, you know, leaving aside the question of whether it's going to drive up the deficit and what its overall inflationary impact would be, Chris points out that the law is built out of these leftovers from when the objective was stimulating the economy rather than curbing inflation. Now, as you've written in the past for us and for other outlets, you know, the, the political economy of the current moment is very different from, from what it was, you know, a decade ago uh, or even up until 2020. Uh, we've exited now the era of what might be called free lunch economics when governments had this idea that they could just spend whatever they, they wanted to without facing any kind of inflationary consequences. Uh, or really reckon with uh, a growing debt burden. So, you know, I, I guess my question is, when, if ever, are government officials going to realize that that era has indeed come to an end? Yeah, I, I believe in, uh, the era of free lunch economics is still mostly over, even despite these bills. Because uh, keep in mind, the era of free lunch economics, which we've seen gradually over the past 12 years, was an era in which we were told that there was essentially no constraint on federal spending and borrowing. Interest rates are guaranteed to be low forever. Inflation is guaranteed to be low forever. And that means that deficits ultimately don't matter. We can add tens of trillions of dollars in essentially free lunch spending. And this is the silly season in which Bernie Sanders runs for president proposing $97 trillion over 10 years in new initiatives. Elizabeth Warren proposes $45 trillion, And Joe Biden becomes the relative moderate for proposing only $11 trillion over 10 years. To put that in context, the last three Democratic presidential nominees had only promised $1 to $2 trillion in fiscal expansions over 10 years. Biden was the moderate for proposing $11 trillion. And then he immediately came in $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, a $500 billion infrastructure bill, huge expansion of discretionary spending. And then the bow on top was supposed to be a $5 trillion Build Back Better proposal that was even seen by Bernie Sanders and others as too small. So the era of free lunch economics wasn't that that we that we were just going to stop at at more modest expansions it was that we could we could essentially do everything we could do national health care universal basic income green new deal free college student loan forgiveness and it could and it, we could do it with all without taxing the middle class anymore i think that era has collapsed because now People now have seen the inflation we've seen over the past year and a half, and they rightly associate this inflation with the spending spree. And the political support for trillion-dollar bills has somewhat collapsed. People see the inflation, and people are also seeing now the rising interest rates, which is going to make it even more expensive for the federal budget. And so we're still going to see fiscal expansions. I mean, even before this era of free lunch economics, even before 2009, 
Congress wasn't exactly greatly responsible, but the increases were more modest. I think even the fact that right now we're seeing bills that are $400 billion, $300 billion, it's still pretty, pretty large, you know, by historical standards. But no one's talking trillion-dollar bills anymore. No one's talking $5 trillion bills. The Bernie Sanders fantasy has now been shutted off. Um, the, the MMT argument that the printing press can finance everything, it has been exposed as a complete fraud. So in that way, I think the era of free lunch economics is ending. Hmm. Um, you know, Manchin announced that the price of his support for the Inflation Reduction Act was a promise from Chuck Schumer to reform uh, the environmental permitting system, uh, streamlining various laws like the National Environmental Policy Act that delay new building projects, cause all sorts of, um, you know, gears to slow down. Uh, Permitting reform is something we've long regarded as a common sense uh, change at City Journal. So this would be, I think, uh, a genuine policy improvement But, you know, is its passage really a foregone conclusion, given that the spending package is supposedly supposedly going to come first? And so presumably Manchin's leverage evaporates after that point. Joe Manchin took a leap of faith on this. Uh, They promised him that they will pass permitting reform after they do the reconciliation bill. And we've already seen how Democrats can burn lawmakers. There were promises made to the squad in the House for legislation last year, such as uh, Congressman Ocasio-Cortez, that were ultimately broken after they got their votes. Um, Just the Republicans were just lied to about whether there'd be a reconciliation bill after the semiconductor bill. So Joe Manchin is really taking a leap of faith that Chuck Schumer is not going to do that to a member of his own Senate caucus, that they will pass this. But, you know, they may not have the votes to pass it. You never know what's gonna, actually going to be in the, the bill for permitting reform. What what will be added to it? What will be subtracted? What kind of coalition will result? I mean, this is the Senate. Nothing passes easily. That being said, permitting reform would be at least a small victory here. The the the, the situation right now is, is pretty bad. It takes, on average, seven years to get a permit uh, to get to, to get through the permitting gauntlet for most major federal projects, compared to uh, an average of two years in Europe and three, actually three years in Europe and two years in Canada, it can take seven years in the United States on average. There was an example uh, where an Amtrak expansion began the permitting process in 1992 and was finally got th- passed through the permitting process in 2017. It took 25 years. And it essentially becomes a, a veto by permitting because any stakeholder can just file lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, even if they're frivolous, and delay a project forever. So it really can be progress if we can get permitting reform. But the effect on inflation might be a little more modest. It might reduce costs to builders, which would reduce inflation. But at the same time, the administration is doing new tariffs. They're doing Buy America rules, where they're refusing to buy cheaper imports and making sure that the federal government pays higher domestic prices for goods and services. They're trying to expand Davis-Bacon prevailing wage rules that force contractors and the government to pay wages way above market rates. Um, There's still a very slow process with oil and gas permits, 
there's a student loan moratorium, and there's new spending. And so it's, we might be able to build more infrastructure with permitting reform. We might be able to reduce the inflation rate slightly. But boy, they keep adding to inflation everywhere else. Um, a final question, Brian. You, you published a, a fascinating report back in May, uh, which still has a, a lot of shelf life, I think, on Trump's fiscal legacy. Uh, what are the principal takeaways from your research uh, on on the, the Trump period and and with the policy at the end of you know Biden's first two years now uh, taking shape, um, you know what what's the preliminary judgment about Biden's fiscal record? Yeah, my my Trump report showed that he added seven point eight trillion dollars in in ten year budget deficits. Um, I mean, his, his legislation, I'm sorry, added $7.8 trillion in 10-year budget deficits, um, which which was even more than Bush and Obama did in eight years. Trump added more in four years than they did in eight years. And a lot of it, there was the tax cuts. Some of it was justified with the pandemic, but there was a lot of other big spending. And $7.8 trillion was pretty large. That being said, you know, even with President Biden right now, he already did $1.9 trillion for the American Rescue Plan. Other legislation since then is probably going to add about $2 trillion to 10-year deficits. So in a year and a half, it looks like legislatively, President Biden will have added about $4 trillion in 10-year deficits legislatively. Um, that is more than uh, uh, a lot of previous presidents. In fact, it's it, on pace to, to dwarf Obama, Bush, and Trump if he continues this pace. And this is the, the challenge we're in right now because when I'm measuring these 10-year deficits, I'm just measuring what they do legislatively. But this is happening at the same time when the underlying deficits due to Social Security and Medicare are getting even worse. You know, a decade from now, we're projected to have the baseline deficit be $2 trillion a year or if interest rates go up closer to $3 trillion per year. So when you think of presidents adding huge spending on top of baseline deficits that are already rising, the danger right now is that we're facing deficits that could be, again, about $3 trillion a decade from now, even during peace and prosperity, uh, which is which is really dangerous. So it seems like you know President Obama added $5 trillion over the decade, President Trump added $7.8 trillion over the decade, and Biden's on pace to add about $4 trillion just in his first year and a half. At some point, something's got to give. Uh, and I'm worried that if we don't do something more gradually soon, we're going to have to do something more drastic later. Uh, but yes, if you go to the Manhattan Institute website, I have the most detailed breakdown I think anyone has seen of, of the Trump presidency from a budgetary perspective. I went through every line item of every bill signed into law, as well as looked at all deficit changes that resulted from economic and technical re-estimates to really break down how President Trump affected our fiscal future. Well, thank you, Brian, very much. Uh, don't forget to check out Brian Riedel's work on the City Journal website. A link to his author page in the description where you can find that study uh, we've been talking about and, and lots of other um, very informative work. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, 
uh, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Brian Riedel, thanks very much for coming on today. This was fun, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.